please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 5, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. From the very beginning of this book, John had been promised a revelation of Jesus Christ, which later became the title of the book in the eyes of the church. And now John has come to it, the proper matter of the book, the scroll that is in the right hand of God, the sovereign sitting upon the throne. But the book is sealed up. So rather than being an apocalypsis, a revelation, an unveiling, an uncovering, it comes to it and the book is sealed up tight, just as it was in the days of Daniel. The challenge comes from this strong angel. Is there any creature who is worthy? Is there any creature who has the standing to approach the divine throne Take the book from his hand, break the seals, and read its contents. At the challenge of the strong angel, all of creation is silent. And John grieves because no one is found worthy to open the book. As we said before, there is something in this good and something in this not so good. Good that he has set a proper value upon the book, but bad in that he has taken his eyes off of Jesus Christ. You remember, if you can think all the way back to our exposition of Revelation 1.1, the problem of the genitive. This was called a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the problem is, does this mean that 
Jesus Christ himself is being revealed? Or does it mean that Jesus Christ is doing the revealing? In Revelation 1.1, although both of these things no doubt are true, the emphasis is upon Jesus Christ as the revealer. So perhaps John ought not to have been too surprised that no creature was found adequate to the task. Only Jesus is going to be found worthy to take the book, to break the seals, and to read it and reveal its contents. Even while John is in his grief, the elder makes his approach and tells John not to weep. And he says that Jesus Christ has prevailed to open the book. And then he describes the Lord Jesus Christ in two ways. He describes him as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as the root of David. Next week, if the Lord wills, we will talk about uh, the significance of these two uh, descriptions. But today I want to focus on the fact that they are fulfillments of biblical prophecy, simply to read them. And I think no doubt you, your mind travels back to Old Testament revelation, the prophecy of Jacob, that uh, Judah would be like a lion's whelp, and that uh, uh, rulers would come from Judah. And then the promises made to David and to the house of David, that there would be a root coming from Jesse, the Messiah. So here we have prophecies offered and in Jesus Christ fulfilled. But then my mind was taken up with some other considerations because I had a concern that we might not be able to reap the full value of saying uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. And it actually might take me more than a few minutes to explain the reason that I would be concerned. This brings us to something of the apologetics of prophecy. And I bring this up because I do believe in our day and time in Reformed circles, because of the influence of presuppositionalism, of both kinds, the Vantilian kind and the Clarkian kind, that the apologetic value of prophecy has largely been lost in Reformed circles. Once upon a time in Reformed circles, there was a massive body of literature devoted to the subject. Uh, how the prophecies proffered under the Old Testament and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ are proofs so many proofs, such illustrious proofs of the divinity of the Christian religion. Uh, but now that is not so much the use of these prophecies anymore. Uh, and this is a great shame. I'm not going to endeavor anything this morning other than something of a sketch of Reformed apologetics as it was then and as it is now, and then try to rehabilitate the older Reformed apologetic as far as I can do so in, in an hour's time. But I would like to set forth first two disclaimers. First, 
If you know me very well, you know that I wish that I was not even having to talk about this. Once upon a time, this was a great interest of mine. Uh, Currently, I'm sort of over the interest. I wish that it did not need to be discussed. But I do think that um, in our day and age, when it comes to errors within the Reformed camp, this will probably make the top ten list. If you treat Van Til and Clark separately, they'll probably be two in the top ten list. But second, I I do recognize that um, what I'm getting ready to do will not be enough to convince the Van Tilian or the Clarkian, maybe not even enough to set your own mind to rest. But I am hoping that it might be um, at least suggestive of the uh, right direction to move and maybe even sometimes the right questions to ask when you bump into these things. I don't think that there's any sort of strength uh, in the presuppositional mentality among us currently. But as you reach out to other Reformed people, and I always encourage you to do it, you will bump into... Vantillians and Clarkians, and they will say things that will pull very uh, vigorously upon your heart. They will say things like, this is the one and only Reformed apologetic. And of course, we all want to be as Reformed as possible, don't we? And so this pulls on the heart. Of course, it's no argument for anything, but there's a certain pull because we all want to be Reformed. Let me start with a a brief sketch of Reformed apologetics. And remember, don't lose sight of it. I have a long story to tell, but we're coming back towards prophecy, but I've got to lay out something of a foundation first. I do believe that it's fair to say, although you'll hardly find a Vantillian or Clarkian that will grant it, But I do think that it is fair to say that presuppositionalism among Reformed people is new. In other words, it's less than a hundred years old, really uh, in its second generation or so. It is a new thing. The older Reformed apologetic was not this, was not presuppositionalism. I would describe it as Aristotelian scholasticism. The basic assumption of the old Aristotelian scholasticism, as it was practiced by Protestants as well as Catholics, the basic assumption was that man had a functioning mind. The technical vocabulary for this was that he had a functioning epistemology. Basically, his Senses could be relied upon to gather data from the creation, but that he was also furnished with a logical apparatus for the integration of that data. So he could look at the data around him and draw conclusions from it that weren't necessarily immediately apparent within the the creation itself. Uh, And here again, this this is just the sketch. Man would then look upon the creation with his mind constructed logically as it is, and he would draw conclusions. 
that there is a creator. That this creation cannot explain itself. And even some very basic things about that creator. That he exists. That he is powerful. That he is wise. And that he is good. You can see all of this in our Confession of Faith, chapter 4. Because these Westminster divines were these old Protestant scholastics who did theology in this way. The most basic and fundamental form of argument that was used, time immemorial, is what has become known as the cosmological argument. Basically, it's a reasoning from effects back to causes. And since you cannot have an infinite regress in reasoning from effects to causes, you must eventually arrive at a first. So, uh, uh, this assumes a couple of things. One, it assumes the law of causality. That uh, every effect has a cause. And uh, it also assumes the law of identity. Basically, A is A. Anything that is numerable, even if you put a lot of them together, cannot suddenly become innumerable. Because A is A. And a number is a number. And a very big number is still just a very big number. It never becomes innumerable. So you cannot have a series of cause and effect relationships that are numerable that suddenly become innumerable at some point. This is a contradiction and this is ridiculous. And thus the doctrine of the first cause. This was not, um, this was not unique to... Protestants, this is something that Roman Catholics also believed. It was not unique to Christians, but also conclusions that the pagans had arrived at. And I would say that uh, uh, most of the child that opens his eyes in this world begins to do this kind of reasoning. Uh, I remember doing it as a child. Mommy, where do I come from? Well, you come from... Me and your dad, or you guys come from, <laughs> and so on, until eventually you have to arrive at a first. It can't go back forever. You see this uh, in Aristotle and his doctrine of the unmoved mover, uh, the first mover of all things, which is the same kind of argument. You see this in our own Confession of Faith 5.2. Notice the language here, which is loaded in the historical context. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly and so on. But notice here God is called what? Is called the first cause. And in this context, it is something of a nod to the very long history of the cosmological argument. God, the first cause of all things. Now, again, I know that I'm not going to be persuading anybody that's not already uh, persuaded. I've been at this sort of thing too long to, to be naive in this regard. But I would just simply point out that um, this can be traced back to Aristotle and beyond. This seems to be the way that almost all... In, See, once you see it in this context, then it's not easy for us to see it the way it was for the Reformed, who were 
scholastics who are so schooled in history. This is the way that all of the peoples of the world always arrived at the same conclusion that there is a God, even if they don't know very much about that God or derive all sorts of mistaken conclusions about him. The Reform would look at this and say, it is a fact that the human mind, such as it's constituted, operating upon this created world, always draws the same conclusion. And theoretical atheism has been an anomaly in the history of the world, and a forced one at that, even when it's arisen in the modern age. As they say, men suddenly become much more honest when they're in a foxhole and bullets are whizzing by. So um, theoretical atheism has simply been a plaything of the of the modern era. Nobody's ever really believed it. So when you look at the history of the world, you see what the reform meant when they said that this mind functioning on this creation always draws the conclusion that there is a God. So, if this is true, and this apologetic was always adequate, what happened? Why is it that even in reform circles it's perceived as being no longer adequate? Well, there came a time when um, uh, philosophers began to examine more carefully the, uh, the presuppositions upon which all of this thinking was founded. You might say that there was a movement in philosophy to become more presuppositionally aware. So what are the things that I am assuming in constructing such a proof? And let me show you something of how it happened and how it disturbed the Christian mind, where the Christian mind had largely been quiet concerning these matters. This is just one example. David Hume, British philosopher, probably safe to associate him with the early 1700s, so not, uh, not too far away from the Reformation era. Hume was what we would call a pure empiricist. Basically, the only certain and reliable information is the information you gather from the senses. So he starts with that. He's an empiricist. The only thing you can really trust is the senses. He did not trust the logical operations of the mind. He said, that's just opinion. But what you could be sure about is what the senses immediately perceive and detect. Then Hume turns his attention towards Aquinas' cosmological argument. And he says, you can't see causality. You can't hear it. You can't taste it. You think you might. But for example, if I were to strike a pool ball, and it was to strike another one, we might say the movement of the first ball caused the movement of the second. But all you see is the pool balls. And the contiguity of the events, that the one event followed another, you didn't see a third thing called causality. Causality is not an object of sense, so it can't be relied upon. And so he says that um, Aquinas' cosmological argument is grounded upon an unfounded and unprovable assumption. And so he thinks that he's overturned the whole thing. And it sounds smart. And so a lot of Christians get a little weak in the knees. And they think to themselves, has you overthrown the cosmological argument? Not by a long shot. 
First of all, um, uh, Hume's empiricism destroys Hume's empiricism. Uh, what I mean is, without the law of causality, the senses can't function. In other words, he's presupposing the very same thing that he will, that he denies to Aquinas. In other words, uh, without the presupposition of uh, causality, you know, the senses don't function. It's the light reflecting from objects striking my eyes that causes the series of neural reactions that run back to my brain communicates information. Without, without it, the assumption of the law of causality, you might have ideas in your mind that have no antecedent reality outside of yourself. They're simply effects that pop into your mind with no antecedent causes at all. In other words, Hume's empiricism needs causality. It needs an assumption that is not empirically determined, and so his empiricism overthrows his own empiricism. He's destroyed himself, not just Aquinas in attacking causality. Uh, but we can do more in defending Aquinas. Aquinas did, for example, and Aquinas is just one example of people who did this kind of thinking, but um, can causality be uh, defended? And it's true that sometimes causality was simply assumed and the assumption wasn't examined or tested for its validity. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't a valid assumption. It just means that it hadn't been examined or thought about very much. Uh, so in order to, to rehabilitate this, and I'll come back to causality here in just a second. First, I want to point out that just like everything else, there cannot be an infinite regression of proof. Eventually, there, has to, there have to be first principles that are not proven, but are the ground for every proof that you will run. And I would say for every thought that you think. These are the sine qua non of thought. The things without which not. You will not have any thoughts at all without these things. There's a handful of them. And you'll see that these are things that you couldn't prove, but without which, you couldn't prove anything else. And so they're seen to be axiomatic. They're taken, for those of you that took a geometry class, they're taken as the given. What's given, and then now we build proofs from what, from what has been given. The first of these would be existence. There's not going to be any thinking without existence. And consciousness. So there's not going to be any thinking without a conscious and existing individual. Also the law of identity, that a thing is itself. A is A. I, I know that the law of identity, I just rec recommend this to you. I know that the law of identity seems so simple that it's hardly worthy of attention, but almost everybody messes it up. Almost everybody messes it up. Um, as soon as they begin to ask questions like, why is God the way that he is? They've lost the law of identity. It's simply because A is A. There isn't, there isn't going behind A is A. He is himself. Uh, spend some time with that. Think about it. And it prevents a lot of errors. Now, as corollaries of these, um, we have the law of non-contradiction. 
If a thing is itself, it can't be itself and not itself at the same time and in the same relationship. And also the law of causality, which is basically identity applied to action. A thing acts according to its identity in a given context. So here we have five things. Existence, consciousness, identity, non-contradiction, and causality. And really we only need one other thing in order to have uh, a functioning brain or epistemology. And that's the reliability of the senses. This has become a point of great dispute. I'll come back to this with, uh, with Gordon Clark. But um, because the objection is that the senses are not uh, reliable, that the senses deceive. The, the famous illustration of this, have you ever put an oar into the water and it looks bent? And you pull it out and it looks straight and then you put it back in and it looks bent. And so, um, if I might say so, misguided philosophers have said, you know, that the eyes have deceived us. The senses are not reliable. They deceive us all the time. (coughs) Really, says I, at what point can the senses deceive? They exist. They have an identity. And they act according to their identity in a given context. In other words, the light acted according to its identity strikes my eyeball. And my eyeball, acting according to its identity, focuses those light rays toward the back. Now you get into some things I don't understand very well, but there are rods and cones back there for receiving light and channeling it to the nerves. And then the nerves, acting according to their identity, pass it, as it were, hand-to-hand, back to the brain, where my brain then interprets that light that has been received. At what point given the fact that we've already presupposed identity and causality, at what point could any of this deceive? In the case of the bent oars, uh, the bent oar, or the apparently bent oar, your eyes haven't deceived you at all. They're not even capable of deceiving you. They've detected something very important. Because after all, the eyes don't properly see the oar. They see the light reflected from the oar. And they have registered a very important piece of information that light waves do not travel at the same speed in air that they do in water. So they have told you exactly what the light waves are doing because that's all that they can do. They have an identity and they act according to uh, that identity. That is causality. You might mistakenly interpret that information For example, if you don't understand very much about light waves. But usually the other axioms come in and they they have a tendency to correct those things even if we don't understand. We might not understand what's going on with the light waves, but we know this ore probably can't be bent and not bent at the same time and in the same relationship. And there doesn't appear to be sufficient causality for the water to bend the ore. And so the other axioms tend to come in and keep us from making very uh, gross mistakes uh, in these things. But the senses are reliable. They can't deceive. They are material objects that act according to their identity and uh, communicate uh, information. So when we come back uh, uh, to uh, Aquinas' cosmological argument, we find that... that, uh, the assumptions of identity and causality are not only defensible, but they are necessary 
And not only are they necessary, but they are actually granted by every one of your opponents that will ever utter a word. So not only are you asserting these things, but for somebody even to listen to your voice and to receive these words is also accepting all of your presuppositions that are uh, that go into making up the cosmological argument. They hear discrete sounds, that is the law of identity. They're able to uh, distinguish those sounds from other sounds, that's the law of non-contradiction. If they speak, they're they're assuming a causal sequence that what comes from their body is going to make its way to your ears and what comes from your body is going to make its way back to their ears in a cause and effect sequence. They grant all of this. Um, All you really need for the cosmological argument is is cause and effect chains, that's the law of causality, and the fact that they cannot be infinite. That's the law of identity. Nothing that is numerable can be innumerable. It's a violation of the law of identity and the law of non-contradiction, so there has to be a first. I'm going to say something here in all humility. This has become a great battlefield text in this whole issue. But turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. should just say that my, my favorite way to do this because I think it's the simplest thing simplest way to do it and it, it does tell very it dovetails very nicely with the way the Bible expresses these things time uh, being divisible into discrete and numerable units by definition cannot be infinite that makes the, a beginning a rational necessity in other words Uh, Infinite time is an oxymoron. It's an impossibility. It's a contradiction. Because if you add up minutes, at what point do they become infinite? It's always just a number of minutes. And that means uh, if there is an L, there has to be a beginning. Time is limited. It's defined. It has an identity. Has boundaries. Remember, A is A. It has a definition. It has an identity. It has boundaries. This this whole um, this whole perspective of looking upon the creation and uh, and deriving truths concerning the existence of God and at least some of His attributes is something that is clearly acknowledged and taught in the Word of God. In Romans chapter one, verse twenty, I'll just look at this one verse. And I say that I put this forward with with some humility. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I think if you give it another hundred years, this verse will be the death of presuppositionalism. This one little word will fell it eventually. You say, well, why do you say that? Because here, it's uh, positing the very thing that we're talking about, that man, looking at creation, derives truths concerning God. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I want you to notice here that things that are invisible, invisible things concerning God, things concerning His power and His Godhead, these invisible things are seen by men from the created things, and they are understood by them, and they are understood so reliably that no one has any excuse. And when you look at the history of the world, is this not so? That all people have been theistic people. That idea has become greatly corrupted. They add to it all sorts of perversions. But this brain, functioning upon this creation, always draws those conclusions. The problem is, is not in this. The problem, as Paul points it out in Romans, is that in spite of the fact that men know this to be true, because they don't want to worship the God of heaven. Now, you see, this is not so much a brain problem. This is a heart problem. Because they don't want to worship this God of heaven, they suppress the knowledge of that truth. So it's bubbling up in them, but because they don't like the conclusions, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. We'll come back to this in a, in a few moments as well. We can also derive from all of this, which is very important for where we're going. So just put this in your pocket. The world had a beginning, and that beginning, by definition, must be by special miracle. In other words, the, the creation can't, can't uh, explain itself. Works something like this. I think that this is probably a good definition of time. You know, time is not a thing. Time is a concept. But basically, as material bodies, which are existing things, change in their spatial relationship to each other, in other words, as they move and change their spatial relationship to each other, the human mind, rational minds, chart time. There's been a succession of these relationships. And you can see why God would say he set the heavenly bodies so that men could chart times and seasons and days and years. These material bodies are changing in their spatial relationship to each other. They're moving. And so philosophers say that time is a function of matter and motion. To have a beginning, that means that when you wind it all the way back, and this is why Aristotle had a doctrine of an unmoved mover, you have to have something that at least introduces the motion, at the very least. Now, I, um, our Bible teaches more than that, perhaps more than what philosophy on its own could have derived. But the motion has to be derived from outside of the system. Imagine this. Imagine that you have matter that is completely inert. That means no motion. And therefore, no time. Matter, completely inert. Remember, A is A. That matter is inert. Not moving. No principle of motion. So where does the motion come from? It's got to come from outside of the system. Now, I say that this is important because uh, nat naturalism gets very nervous by the concept of miracle, they'll say that miracles are impossible. But what I'm saying to you is that the concept of miracle is a rational necessity. 
without a miracle, there is no beginning. And a beginning is a rational necessity. Now, what's left? The situation as we have it, again, for every human being that opens his eyes and his brain begins to work upon this creation, he knows that there is a God. He knows that he is a sinner. And this creates angst. I know that there's a God. And I know that I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do. What is going to become of me? Is there any way of reconciliation with this great being? Is there a way of salvation? I look around me and I see that he's good indeed, but he also appears to be very angry and that he routinely destroys his creatures. What's going to become of me? Jonathan Edwards said that at this point, any sort of right-thinking individual would scour the creation looking for any other communication from God. And he would know it by its definitive mark, miracle. That's how he would know that this is not just some communication from some creature. It's when uh, that which is outside of the created realm acts that he would know that he had a revelation from God. You know, interestingly enough, um, you find this in the scripture as well. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm telling you something in developing in a philosophical way what, what, the, what the mind of man seems to do in a flash. You know, um, when the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, Peter's been out fishing all night with his with his uh, compatriots, and they've not caught anything. And and Jesus, by a miracle of knowledge, wisdom, and power, says, "Throw out over the other side." And they throw out, and they catch more fish than they can contain. And the books the boats begin to sink. He didn't need a long rational and philosophical discourse concerning what happened. He falls down and he says, leave me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Because he knew that something had happened here that was beyond the realm of natural causality. Or when, uh, you remember when they were beset with uh, the storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus stands and says, peace be still. And it says, I believe it's the account in the Gospel of Mark, that they went from being afraid to being very much afraid, asking one another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Because what is in the power of the word of man to stop the wind and the waves? Nothing. No adequate causality. So we've done here in a philosophical way, simply describing in a philosophical way what everybody already knows. Sort of the strange thing about it. And the Bible very much um, relies upon this. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. 
For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. I want you to notice here, he's basically said if um, uh, the word spoken in ancient times was enough to condemn upon disobedience, how are we going to escape if we neglect this great salvation? And then he goes on to describe that salvation is that which uh, was spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by the apostles with God also bearing witness to them uh, that they were speaking the very word of God. It's as if God was setting his seal upon it. This is not only my message, but behold my stamp and my seal. That which only the great God of heaven can do has been done. And you remember the, the Apostle Paul talked about this as being the marks of his apostleship that he did miracles in their midst. Interestingly enough, isn't this a very convincing proof of the, of the miracles of Paul in that he could say to the Corinthians, you've seen the marks of my apostleship and the miracles that I had performed, not some distant, faraway place, in the midst of you. He had performed these miracles in the midst of them. Now, if that's not true, Paul could never say it. But he's so sure that they're going to grant it his dream. It'd be like me trying to say, you ought to receive my ministry because of the many miracles that I've brought in your midst. We'd say, well, that's nonsense. You've not brought any miracles in our midst. What a powerful thing. He didn't say, the marks of my apostleship, I wrought miracles some other place. He wrought miracles in the midst of them. But this is God's sign and stamp, the way that he sets his seal to his message. Because otherwise, these things could have been disregarded as the words and fancies of men. But because God had set his own seal upon it, the mark of his power, then they knew that this is the word of God indeed. We've come a long way back to the concept of prophecy. Prophecy is a miracle. It's a miracle of wisdom. When things are discussed in future times that no mortal man could prognosticate, we see in it a miracle of wisdom. The interesting thing about this is this is not a, uh, like, um, you know, Paul teaching a doctrine and then God showing a sign to prove that Paul speaks for God. But interestingly enough, with prophecy, the message itself is the miracle. Here you have a great uh, miracle embedded in the message itself. God testifying to his truth by telling of future things that men could not possibly know. And I'll tell you something about this. We can, we can fumble around with this in all sorts of ways. But I, I tell you that the unbelieving higher critics of the German school bring a convincing proof for this. They look at the last half of Isaiah. They look at the book of Daniel. And they say, these men could not have foreseen these events. So they had to have been written afterwards. Now, of course, the Jews have always said these things were written when they were written, and there's no history to back up any of that. For example, they look at uh, 
Isaiah, and they say he could not have prophesied the coming of Cyrus by name 200 years in the future to him. It's impossible. Right. (laughs) For a man. And that's the point. They say it would be impossible for Daniel to foresee the rising and falling of the four great kingdoms before it happened. Or to see the battling of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids back and forth through Palestine with the detail that he sees it. It would be impossible for him to know it beforehand. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's the point. These are miracles of wisdom. So the higher critic, because he doesn't want to worship God rather than receiving these as divine testimony suppresses the knowledge of the truth and invents a solution. They were written after the fact. But of course, there's no history in all of the world to confirm, corroborate, or make them even think that other than the fact that they want to deny the miraculous. That's the whole thing. The miracle is impossible. But if you you see here, you return to the first principle, miracle is not impossible. Miracle is a rational necessity. I've come a very long way. A long way that in some ways I wish I didn't have to come really to deal with this matter of the new reformed apologetics. If you were to ask me what I thought motivated the new reformed apologetic, I think it is this presuppositionalist, this presuppositional angst that, um, you know, did David Hume in analyzing the presupposition, uh, overturn all of the classic, I might say, universally human proofs for the existence of God. Did it really do that? And so they uh, develop a new form of apologetics that they think insulates them against Hume. And they've had a growing confidence because... The presuppositionalism is so confusing and so mystifying that it almost always leaves their opponents completely befuddled. You want an example of this? Um, you listen to the debate between um, uh, Gordon Stein and who was that great disciple of Van Til? His name escapes me. Bonson, Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson gets the upper hand on Stein because Stein was prepared for the wrong thing. Stein was prepared for a classical apologetic. Uh, Bonson approaches him from left field. Stein has no idea what he's talking about or why he's saying any of the things that he's saying. Completely befuddled. Now, that's always looked at as a great victory for presuppositional apologetics. Victory over an unprepared opponent is hardly a great victory on an intellectual battlefield. And I do believe that I did hear some things that Stein reformulated to deal with this kind of apologetics as well later. But he was kind of stuck up on him from behind and talked to him about some things that that he didn't understand. But all of this has been that there's a growing confidence And then you begin to put stamp on it like, uh, this is the only reformed apologetic and you want to be reformed, don't you? And and now it becomes a very powerful movement. If I were to summarize uh, all of what presuppositional apologetics does, it's basically this. You remember what I said about axioms, that they're not 
proven, uh, but they are the grounds of every proof. They would say the same thing about the God of the Bible. That the God of the Bible is not to be proven. He's a necessary ground for every proof. Now, if you understand that, you'll see why, why it would be really basically the end of apologetics. You don't, um, you don't uh, defend an argument for the existence of God where God is the conclusion. God has taken as the fundamental presupposition necessary for the running of any proof. So you don't prove God. You simply ex- assert the existence of God very much the way you would an axiom. Now, as I said, I, I can't deal with this in, in any sort, sort of uh, detail. But I, I want to give you some things to think about and to keep in mind as you bump into this. If you are very interested in this, I, I will discuss it. I can't say I'm happy to discuss it, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll do my job in this regard and help you in the, uh, the study of it. But I want to give you some things to think about just on the surface when you bump into this sort of thing. First of all, what I might call a prima facie case. I would assert that the newness of an apologetic is a refutation of that apologetic. At least it couldn't be the uh, apologetic that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1 that everybody does. You You see what I'm saying? The very newness of Antill and Clark's apologetic is its own refutation. At least that it's not what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1. Here's the problem. Vantillian and Clarkian scholars will try to make arguments that their apologetic really can be traced back into other thinkers. Uh, frankly, having looked at some of this reconstruction of history, horrific. Horrific. Terrible history. Uh, I read a, I read a, uh, a dissertation by, by a man, a Vantillian, who was trying to say that basically Francis Turretin was a Vantillian. It's not so. It's, it's a reconstruction of the history. You're just not going to find it there. You read, Van, read, uh, read Turretin. Read him yourself. And what you will see is the old Protestant scholasticism. Read all of the old Reformed systematic works and you'll see the same thing over and over again. Basically, the, the apologetic as I've, as I've presented it to you. But they'll try, to, they'll try to do this. They'll try to say, well, basically, you know, our apologetic was always um, existing in these other ones. But here's the question you need to ask yourself when you bump into this. Then why were Van Til and Clark noteworthy at all? Gordon Clark and Van Til also taught the doctrine of Christ's satisfaction. But nobody remembers them for that. And I will not be remembered for teaching the doctrine of satisfaction because I will have taught what everybody else has always taught concerning it. I won't be remembered. These men are remembered because they are different. Because they were doing something that nobody had done before. That's why they're remembered. Now, I know less about Clarkians, but Vantillians will tell you, well, we're just working out consistently what the older thinkers did in part. Look at the older documents and see if you can convince yourself of that. This is a new 
apologetic. And if it's a new apologetic, it could not be it could not possibly be the argument that they were running in Romans chapter one. That Paul seems to say that every person in the world does. They see it, they know it, they know that there's a God, they know something about his eternal power and got it, and then they suppress it because they don't want to worship him, because they hate him. So that's a prima facie case right there in and of itself. I'd encourage you to think about that when you when you bump into this. These ideas, in some ways, are still in their infancy. And I could wish that there had not been so many who had rushed to embrace these ideas in their infancy. Again, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, and it's always safe to prophesy things well after your passing. But I say, let, let Romans 1.20 do its work upon these ideas for another hundred years. And I don't think that the, these ideas will survive it. That one little word will fell them eventually. Um, that God is not taken as the ground of all proof, but he is known by the things that have been made. Now, just a quick word concerning Van Til, and then one about uh, Clark, and we, we will wrap up. Van Til's basic uh, proposition I'll throw some words at you here. This is one of the ways that philosophers do it to intimidate and befuddle. But he would say the triune God of the Bible is the epistemological principium. Uh, in other words, he is the beginning. That's what principium means. He is the uh, he's axiomatic in thought. He's taken as the given in thought and necessary for every other proof. Now, the statement itself, all I have to say about this, and after this point, I, I do think that you can read Van Til as much as you want, but I don't think you'll ever be able to get over this hump right here. The statement itself is self-refuting, self-contradictory, nonsensical. You say, well, how, how can you say that? Because the axioms that we've already been talking about have to be operative in the mind before the statement is even intelligible. Just take the word God, which is actually a higher order and very complicated uh, concept. Many, many connections that the human mind is to make with, with reference to God. God in his being is simple as far as a concept in the mind. Very complicated. Very many things attached to the idea of God. But just take the word. Somebody utters the word to you. God. Is the epistemological principium. Law of identity. G is G. Law of non-contradiction. G is G and not O. You see, even for the identification and the distinguishing of the letters, make up a word, law of identity, and the law of non-contradiction already needs to be functioning in your mind. They can't be held at bay. We're going to prove identity from God they already need to be functioning in the mind they already need to be there and uh, it's frequently been said by many in print that Van Til seems to have in a very fundamental way confused ontology and epistemology in other words because uh, it's the order of being and the order of knowing, ontology and epistemology. 
we would say that God, of course, is the first being ontologically or with respect to being. But my point is that's not the first thing that you know. (laughs) And there is an uh, epistemological order and an order of argumentation which does not necessarily mirror the order of being. So, uh, again, think about these things. And if you come to understand the law of identity and the law of non-contradiction, you will begin to know that you cannot think a single thought without them being presupposed and functioning in your mind. You can't form sounds to make words. One philosopher once said, there's actually no philosophical option to deny these things is to speak no words, expound no theories, and become a stone. (coughs) And it really is true. Um, Now, I, I must confess that I do not know Clark as well. Clark does formulate things a little bit differently than Van Til. Basically, he says that all of the propositions of the Bible are to be taken as axiomatic. But you still have the same problem. I can't read the Bible without all of these things already functioning. But Clark has done something else that um, is troubling to me. And so troubling to me that I was almost sure that I didn't understand him until every Clarkian that I uh, bump into defends the point. But, But Clark attacked the reliability of sense perception. But I don't think successfully, as I pointed out uh, earlier, but basically said, you know, your senses deceive you all the time. They can't be trusted. They bring no certain knowledge. And then you say, well, uh, Dr. Clark, then if if the propositions of the scripture are then to be taken as axioms, how are they supposed to get into my mind exactly? Either by reading, which requires sense perception, which you've just told me can't be relied upon, or hearing, preaching, which you told me I cannot rely upon. So how do they get into my mind? And he said that these perceptual events, which cannot be relied upon, simply become occasions for God's direct communication of the propositions to your mind. So here you have an immediate revelation of these propositions to the mind. Now again, they will squirm all over the place. Ultimately, Romans 1.20 will have its victory over this as well. It's not that they're unaware of it. They do try to explain it away. But I think, never convincingly, how are you going to get over the fact that the invisible things of God are known by the things that have been made? As a matter of fact, something for you to think about. Uh, Doesn't it just... Clark's system seems to destroy the concept of revelation altogether. There is, no, there is no objective revelation in the creation or in the Bible, at least not any that you could reliably set your hands upon. This is an immediate communication. It's not a mediated communication by means of revelation. It's an immediate communication where the revelation disappears. Think about that for a while. Many uh, in writing have complained that ultimately Gordon Clark's strong emphasis upon logic and logical deduction from biblical propositions is going to end in mysticism because of his denial of self uh, uh, sense perception, that these things are beamed immediately into the mind. Uh, 
So there's no objective test against which to compare these things? You see the problem. I would also say, how are you going to interpret the Bible, which seems to presuppose knowledge of words and sentences and people and trees and grass and all of these things that you picked up in sense perception? But imagine trying to interpret the Bible if you had never seen a man or couldn't be sure that you'd ever seen a man or you'd never seen water or an ocean. Van Til, in this point, actually did much better. He said natural revelation is that context in which we interpret special revelation. And without the natural revelation, you couldn't make sense of the words. <coughs> what is water? If you had never had any sense perception of it. I would say that at the end of the day, the old apologetic is fully adequate. Its presuppositions are defensible and must be granted by everyone who's going to talk to you about it. As soon as they open their mouths, they're going to grant all of your uh, presuppositions. Man who's going to deny these things certainly can't argue with you about them. To argue, he's going to have to grant all of them in the first word that he speaks. This is the method that man has always used to conclude the existence of God and some of those basic attributes. Um, one final word, it's not Arminian. Uh, basically, and I must have heard this 10,000 times at Westminster Seminary, that they said, oh, you, you believe that you can reason people to a belief in God. And that's inherently Arminian. Like if your argument's just not, it's just good enough, then you're going to convince them. Some of you have heard me tell this story. I'll tell you something that I learned as a little boy and I never forgot it. Arguments may be valid and proof might be conclusive, but that does not necessarily mean a sinful heart is going to concede what is obvious and evident. Let me tell you what happened to me when I was a little boy. I was a little boy and Star Wars had just come out. Very big deal. And my mom bought us a record of a lot of the dialogue that was, was on it. And um, I had a, a friend in the neighborhood who was just learning to read. And so he read everything phonetically. Well, he had seen the name Han Solo in print and insisted it had to be Han. He's a little kid reading phonetically. I said, no, that's not the way that it's pronounced. It's Han, of course. You've seen the movie, it's Han. No, it's Han. I said, wait a minute, I know what we'll do. I have the record. We'll go and we'll listen. And so we went and we listened, and it was that soft A over and over again. Han, Han, And he still wouldn't concede. That's not a problem with the ears or a problem with the quality of the evidence. That was a pride problem on that day. Just simply cannot concede what is obvious. Years ago, before my, my conversion, I was also watching this show where um, uh, people had been caught uh, cheating on videotape. And they had them up there, and they were, what an uncomfortable situation. They had them up there, and they were interviewing them. And then, you know, and they were denying it, denying it, denying it. And then, boom, they put it up on the video screen. This is you, caught. And I tell you, one right after another, they'd say, that isn't me. And you could look, and you'd say, that is. That isn't me. 
And I learned something very important from all of this. That an argument can be valid, and the evidence can be conclusive. But persuading the sinful heart is a different matter. It is our job as Christian people to present the valid argument. God turns the heart so that the man will no longer suppress what he knows and what is obvious to him, but rather admit and then rejoice in those in those truths. There's nothing Arminian about it. There's nothing that that implies that you can reason a person to God any more than you know you can persuade a person to become a Christian because you're good at presenting the gospel, which no Vandalian would say that, you know. Don't become good at presenting the gospel because then you become an Arminian or something like that. Now, um, so we've come a very long way and we're almost there. One final thing. In both the Vantillian system and the Clarkian system, and now you're finally going to figure out why I brought all of this up, predictive prophecy, of course, loses its place and power as evidence for the divinity of the religion. For Clark, you simply assume the propositions. You already assume them. Comparing them against history doesn't add anything to it. As a matter of fact, there is no reliable external history to which you could compare them. It's just the propositions of the scripture. And so the prophecy loses its, uh, uh, its convincing, convicting, and confirming power. It's a very similar thing with Van Til. These things are not to be taken as proofs of the divinity of the Christian religion because we've already assumed on the presuppositional level the divinity of the Christian religion. But one final scripture text. Turn with me to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 beginning in verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him. Yet can he not answer nor save him out of his trouble? Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. I want you to notice here that God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, uses predictive prophecy as a mark of the divinity of the Israelite religion as over against the idols and what the idols could do. And then he goes immediately to a prophecy of Cyrus in verse 11, 
the ravenous bird from the east that comes to do the counsel of God's will uh, from that far country. But you see here in the in the Vantillian and Clarkian systems, this kind of declaration from God can no longer retain its place. In some ways, it actually becomes purposeless. Of course, you already you already took for granted that the Israelite religion is the true religion and the Israelite God the true God. No need of proof. But here you see God proving it. Compare my predictive prophecy as over against what the idols can say. Do you find that any that is like unto me? So here it is used as a proof. With respect to prophecy, of course you can use it for the defense and vindication of the Christian religion. Give uh, an answer to inquirers and all of those sorts of things. But um, our use of it among ourselves immediately is going to be for the confirmation of you as believers. I think that you'll see, particularly once we get into chapter 6, that there has been a miracle of wisdom here indeed. That the prophecies match the history uh, so exactly as to be breathtaking. And this confirms us in our faith, particularly when we wrestle with some measure of psychological doubt. Sometimes uh, I think we all have the experience, are we, are we crazy? Mm-hmm. When all of the world is going in this way and they think that these things are sensible, even people that we would count sensible in a lot of ways. And yet we look so odd. Even to our Christian brethren, sometimes we look so odd and it raises the question in us, could we possibly be right? And all of these other folks, wrong concerning these things. C.S. Lewis made a distinction between what he called logical doubt and psychological doubt. Logical doubt is an attack upon your argument, a shaking of its premises and thus its conclusion. He said you ought to be very concerned when that happens. Psychological doubt is a different sort of thing. It's what I'm talking about here. Am I crazy? Nobody's attacked my argument per se. But it just seems strange. Suddenly I feel like I'm in a world that's different than everybody else's world. And the predictive prophecy of the Bible comes back and confirms us. This is the divine religion. We were told beforehand to expect to be out of step with the world. God is a living God and does live in the midst of his people. Even though we don't see him with the seeing of the eye. And although we are, by all outward appearances, frequently afflicted, just like unbelievers, sometimes worse, and we come back and we're encouraged again, this is the divine and true religion. This is the religion of the living God of heaven. Let us pray together.